Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning, and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here once again with my fabulous co-host, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's so good to be back together again talking about housing. Sharon, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the housing crisis in Australia. And of course, this is a global crisis, although it does play out differently in different places. We've had some great conversations so far. We've spoken with Nicholas Frank about the macroeconomic drivers of the challenges we currently face, with Alan Morris about the crisis of social and public and affordable housing, and with Nicole Gurren about urban planning. Today, we're going to bring the housing conversations to a close, at least temporarily, and in that context, we are so delighted to be joined by Professor Barbara Norman to talk about planning issues, particularly how we might need to rethink housing, land use and urban policy in the context of the changing climate, the climate emergency and the projected increase in extreme weather events. Barbara, it's so good to have you with us. I know you will be known to many of our listeners, but I wonder if you'd like to start by introducing yourself. I'm a professor of urban and regional planning. I've practiced for about 20 years, been in academic and research for about the same time. So my background's in sustainable cities, coastal planning and climate change adaptation, worked at all levels of government and uh, internationally. Uh, currently chair the Urban Forum for the Australian Government, advising on the future of our cities and towns and particularly to uh, the Federal Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government, uh, Catherine King. Barbara, it is so good to have you with us today. And all of those things are some of the things that we'd, we'd like to talk to you about. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about some of the real challenges around housing for people who are renting, for those who have mortgages, you know, the dire situation with social and affordable housing and issues around planning. And the challenges are really very deep and very broad. And some of those conversations, I have to say, have been quite depressing. From time to time on Policy Forum Pod, we'd like to do a bit of reimagining. And I wonder if we could start today with some of that reimagining, reimagining our cities and our communities. And, and say, in a decade's time, Barbara, what could our cities be like if we do well? with our planning and with our policies? What, what would you like to imagine a decade on? Well, certainly starting at the national level, a more integrated approach to our national urban policy. Um, what do I mean by that? 
we're one of the few OECD countries not to have one. We somehow think we can grow from 26 million now to nearly 40 million by 2065 without a plan. And so fortunately, that situation has changed with the Australian, this Australian government. And so we're in a bit of catch up. Uh, and I think the, the positive side is it doesn't matter whether I'm speaking to serious players in the transport sector or local government or, or regional planners or uh, built environment professionals or community groups at the local level. Everyone seems to be very supportive of having some national strategy or national spatial plan, however that manifests itself, and that will come to a head next year. Uh, so at least we have some vision of where we're going and, and how we're going to get there and how we're going to manage urban growth in a more sustainable way. So what's that got to do with housing? Well, housing's obviously a very, very important part of that. But so is energy policy, so is water policy, so is uh, transport policy, so is um, biodiversity, a whole gamut of considerations you can think about. And I'm sure in your previous discussions on housing, it's been highlighted that the national government has its purposefully inserted the words well-located housing. And uh, I don't think that was an easy thing to achieve from what I understand, um, but uh, I think it's a really great outcome and it means that the states and uh, other governments, subnational governments, if, if you like, uh, need to consider well-located housing, well-located considerations, close to transport, access to jobs and services and amenities. In other words, livable suburbs, think about it that way. That's, I think, all very positive because, of course, none of this was in place uh, 18 months ago. So you can only think that that's a positive step forward. I think along with that, um, the first, and this is broader and I'll come down to the more local level quickly, but there are three things I think that are really important. There's the urban policy framework that's being developed right now. There's the first climate risk assessment, national one, and it is the first, which is staggering to some of my international colleagues, but our first national climate risk assessment being developed. And alongside is a national climate adaptation plan, which has a direct connection with the location of future housing. So um, I think all of that's very bodes really well at the national level, as well as a whole series of well-being indicators uh, with uh, national treasury framing budgets. So very positive steps forward. I think at the state and local level, I see quite a lot of innovation happening. They did need some sort of confidence and direction from the national government to be able to invest. The planning ministers actually meet now, which they haven't for some time. So at least there's a forum where they all come together to discuss these issues and uh, with the federal minister, and that's a great step forward, communication. Uh, in terms of housing, you will have already had good discussions, I think, I would assume, and you could tell me otherwise, on uh, innovation in the community housing sector, social housing sector uh, from the ground up. What can that look like? Um, I'm a past housing commissioner, but that was a long time ago. Uh, but still, I think some of these principles apply. Well-located, good urban design, you know, the three-storey walk-ups that around a, a central garden uh, you see in places like Copenhagen. That's all possible in Australia, and it's 
about, I think, uh, providing pathways for industry and the government to work together to produce these good outcomes, livable outcomes for our communities. Barbara, it is exciting to hear that we we are moving towards the right track and that there are some positive innovations happening across Australia. And very often it does seem that some of the really great initiatives that happen around housing and around more livable communities focus on wealthier inner city areas. And and I sometimes observe that there is a a bit of self-congratulation around that, but sometimes the outer suburbs or the lower SES communities are neglected. As we're kind of rethinking what our communities can look like, how can we make sure that we transform them in a way that fosters equity and make sure that everyone has the benefits of those really positive initiatives? Well, there's, there's two aspects there. There's how we manage new urban growth and how we retrofit existing urban development, where most people live, of course. And so I think, and how we treat, as you're suggesting, inner suburbs, middle suburbs and and outer suburbs, and of course, our regional towns as well. So I think uh, it's a very diverse country. And I'm always conscious of that in making these answers, because what works for Darwin is very different to Hobart, to Perth, to to, um, Alice Springs in north coast of New South Wales or Queensland. Uh, but I think that uh, very much uh, having a livable, uh, an ingredient to having a livable community is to have a healthy environment to start with. So I always start with this. A healthy environment supports a healthy community. A healthy community supports a healthy economy or a livable community. So I think uh, investing in retrofitting existing outer suburbs with uh, greenery, if you like, that's a very simple term, but all the biodiversity, landscaping, wetlands, uh, punching holes in the concrete, if to put simply, uh, so it can breathe again. Places for, the, like going back to the 60s, where the children can play. And so I think that uh, that should be a strong focus. And then thinking about how we can redesign and retrofit the middle suburbs, which I think will be more of an opportunity to introduce those low to medium density uh, developments. Now, I think key to that is to have demonstration projects because people are fearful of what that might look like, fearful of change and tend to say no. And and that's I don't think that's unreasonable. Some people are unreasonable and I, I call them the bananas, the, the build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. But the... Uh, the, uh, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about just people who are normal people in the suburbs who just would really like to know what good medium density development looks like. And so I think demonstration projects, whether they're funded by the government or in partnership with the private sector, are really uh, a positive way forward. Uh, and I think uh, talking about climate change, showing how they can be energy efficient in an affordable way, making sure people are knowledgeable about what programs are offered by government. People often don't know that they can get all sorts of energy efficiency um, measures in their homes for free from the government. Uh, And I think active travel is the other one that's really important. Cycling, we talk about these things all the time, but, you know, cycling, um, I used to cycle a lot, but I'm more hesitant now because when I don't want to ride on on the busy roads because I value my life. And 
And so um, we need to change that to give people um, the opportunity, programs to help people um, ride safely as well. So active travel, access to services, leafy communities. If you think about all those things, I mean, I'm yet to beat someone who doesn't want to live in a, a green, livable, active travel sort of community-based suburb. So this is what we should be striving towards providing for, for everyone. And that requires planning. And I guess I could talk to you a lot about this, but planning gets a really bad rap often. It's it's seen as the uh, development control. It's um, And so you'll hear people saying, we've got to cut the green tape, cut the red tape, cut everything. Uh, my latest, the latest is Donald Trump saying we should have freedom cities uh, where we just have land anywhere and anyone can do anything. And so it's part of his new platform. Um, so we're getting this sort of rhetoric, uh, uh, complete disaster. You know, let's let's see what happens in a city with no planning and uh, and a noxious industry to someone's home or a kindergarten next to the freeway or, you know, you can go through all those examples of polluted uh, waterways. Should get back to housing, of course, but I'm just trying to say that uh, to connect all these dots, to have a good integrated uh, suburb that works and functions for families and for people, you need to be investing in planning and invest less planning, more planning, more forward planning to provide these services before you develop those outer suburbs and um, have it timed in a much more effective way. It's fascinating to hear you talk about it across the different disciplines. I have to confess the work that I do in health and climate change actually came from an interest in the built environment and the way in which the places we live influence our health and well-being. And I've often wondered if we took health and well-being as the primary lens, what sort of places we could design and what sort of benefits we might see. Barbara, you've already given us some sense about the the international landscape, the the things that we can learn from overseas examples, and particularly the regulation and governance that's present in some parts of the world. And then you mentioned just recently the benefit of demonstration models for people who are curious about what things could be explored in their part of the world. I wonder if there are particular international examples that stand out to you in in your uh, your experience that from which Australia should be learning. Well, recently, I mean, I have been, some places are easier than others. So I uh, have a formal role. In fact, I'll be in Singapore next week, advising the Singapore government on their national, their large research projects. Uh, It's really a social science committee. But anyway, um, so it gives me an insight into what's happening there. And, but that's been, their approach to a more sustainable city has developed over 50 years. Uh, And so it's, it's not something that we can do tomorrow, but anyone who visits Singapore, and they've got a very dis- different system, of course, both in terms of governance and in terms of being able to implement um, strategies, but it's a very green city, a very green city. Everything they do, they must uh, in- include green uh, considerations, climate considerations, uh, water retention You might think that's strange in a tropical city, but most of their water comes from Malaysia. And so they're very focused on um, reducing that dependency. It comes back to 50 years ago where they decided um, that uh, when any major development was up for approval, that it had to go through a sustainability lens. They called it something differently then, but very much around an environmental lens. And so it's very much institutionalised now. 
and and accepted and the community can see the benefits they enjoy the benefits and and the city has prospered as a result because it's a fabulous place to go i uh, recently i guess at the other end of the scale which is much tougher i was in uh, glasgow in uh, scotland now scotland at the national level has what i regard as one of the the best national spatial plans in the world right now and it's just been approved by their parliament interestingly not just a minister or a government by their parliament and I um, met with the chief planner of Scotland now they have housing issues they've always had housing issues they have a lot a lot of uh, poverty to deal with um, depressed uh, locations um, but I spent time with a um, whole regeneration office that's been established in um, Glasgow itself and walked around the the ports and the streets with those people. And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned there. Again, I'll come back to demonstration projects, but detail, attention to detail, actually walking, having something like a regeneration hub in an environment where you're trying to retrofit it and change it and have it resourced in partnership with government to allow the community to drop in, to talk about these issues, to walk Walk, walk the talk, if you like. And so I thought that was a really interesting example. I'll mention just one more quickly, just from my own experience. I'm currently advising a regional council in New Zealand, Bay of Plenty Council. I mention it because of the very strong Maori engagement and um, the issues they have there from a climate perspective and a natural hazards perspective. So the planner I'm working with is Maori, the manager's Maori. The council's very committed to environmental outcomes and the population, I think, is 26% Maori. So it's very much a a Maori-led plan, if you like. I'm learning as much as I'm contributing in that process. And um, that's where I think you might remember the White White Island volcano volcano incident. It's also got Rotorua. It's got all the natural hazards you can think of that they're dealing with, plus like in Australia, housing targets they have to deliver set by the national government. And now they've just had a change of government, which is a very conservative government, to have come in on a platform to throw out the their very, again, leading practice planning act at the national level to throw it all out after years of being developed. So they've got a few challenges on their hands, but I'm working with them to try and uh, stay the course, be strong, and try and resolve these complex issues. Uh, through better connecting, land use planning, housing considerations with uh, climate considerations. I guess it's a pretty good case example uh, more locally of um, of some of the um, challenges but also opportunities. And that's how how we talk about it, talk about how can we turn this situation into opportunities for, for that community. I don't know if that helped, but that's just a bit of a three very different examples to share. Barbara, that's remarkable. And I think having those examples from such different contexts is really useful as we kind of imagine how things could be differently because so much of that work is is already underway in parts of the world. Barbara, we're going to take a very short break now and we're going to come right back to continue this conversation. So listeners, please don't go away. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Barbara Norman. We're talking about issues around urban planning, um, planning our houses, planning our communities for the future. And Barbara, before the break, we were talking quite a bit about cities, both in Australia, but also the kinds of lessons that we can learn if we look at cities internationally. But of course, not all of us live in urban areas, although that's where the majority of our population is. But if we're to reimagine our communities, do we need a different kind of reimagining when we think about coastal areas in Australia and when we think about regional communities? Well, that's, I think, where the opportunities are, certainly in uh, the coastal areas. Uh, Again, it's a different experience around the country, but let's take the growth areas like Wollongong, Newcastle, the big Geelong Um, uh, over in the west, Mandurah, up in the north with Darwin, the regions there, um, their Alice Springs. I guess there's great opportunities to work together, I think, in more medium-sized cities, uh, small to medium-sized cities. Uh, And that's my experience in Canberra, of course, that we all know each other, we can work together. So I do think there's great opportunities. The coastal environments, clearly we need to step back from the coast uh, with uh, uh, projections around sea level rise and coastal erosion and storms. I think that uh, we're definitely moving away from hard barriers, like, you know, it's nonsensical to think of a seawall going around our country, but it does make a lot of sense to take this as an opportunity to restore coastal landscapes, to replant the mangroves, to involve our First Nations uh, people in in their country, if you like, to to restore those landscapes uh, much more. So I think also uh, designing coastal housing or coastal coastal built environments that are sensitive to those coastal landscapes. So no more of those um, inappropriate housing developments that may have occurred in the past that uh, may or may not fall into the sea in the future but uh, much more sensitive coastal design um, solutions. Uh, Some places uh, may not be livable in the future in some of those coastal environments. Some places may not be livable in our hotter inland environments. And um, that's where I mentioned earlier the first climate risk assessment being undertaken to identify some of those hotspots in the future will be really important. Um, I think it will be quite an eye-opener for the Australian community when that information starts to to come through, but really important for people to be educated and understand what the possibilities are from from there on. Coastal, I do chair the Australian Coastal Society. There was, we had a national conference. It's every two years. It was in Newcastle last week. 
Um, I was so impressed, again, on the positive side, so impressed by the young people and their, their papers, their presentations, their enthusiasm. Um, I, and the great thing, I don't have to convince them about any of these issues. They, they get it. And they're really interested in, in trying to solve the problem. So that gives me great energy and, um, and spirit to continue on. And I could see they're coming through with strength. And, and I think those national networks help a lot for those young people to keep connected as they do their work um, around such a big, geographically such a big country. Uh, one more thing on coastal, I think the work up in the Northern Territory with the Aboriginal Land Councils is uh, the Yolngu people. I mean, they, they really do do some excellent work in uh, thinking of the system as an integrated system, catchment to coast to marine, and planning their development and land use activities within that. Uh, I'd like to see a lot more engagement of First Nations people in the southern part of Australia. It's uh, very variable as you go around the coast. And, and I said that, um, I spoke at the opening of that conference, and I, I made that very clear. Uh, point and that was received well. Mm, just because we don't yet have a voice doesn't mean we shouldn't be listening. I think uh, exactly, exactly so. You've just mapped extraordinary in an extraordinary way the, the the challenges and opportunities for urban planning and design, not just in our cities but but on our coasts and across our our growing population. And perhaps we could dig down into some of the specifics. I think it would be good to turn our attention now to land use planning. Can we ask you to explain what land use planning is and who needs to be involved in it? And I think thinking particularly in the context of the projection of increasing extreme weather events and the growing emergency around climate change, what is land planning? Is that the tool that we need uh, to contend with a housing crisis and a changing climate? It's certainly an important tool. Um, land use planning is exactly what it is. It's trying to deliver a more orderly pattern of, of land use activity that uh, provides for the safety and of the community and the protection of the environment and also allows for a productive in urban environment. Think of movement of freight, all those sorts of practical things as well. But it's very much about coordination, about coordinating those activities um, separating activities that don't work together. I mentioned some before that you know we don't need, we do not want polluting activities next to talk about health next to uh, communities. Um, so it's almost like a sieve map, if you like, of different considerations to produce a spatial plan for the city. The most important thing about land use planning is it's spatial. We see many graphs, we see lots of tables in all sorts of fields in the, of endeavour. But in planning, it's um, one, it's spatial, and two, it looks forward. And so I think that they're two very important qualities. I think it's changing, and I think it's changing for the better, it, uh, being much more inclusive in terms of engaging a wider group of considerations and people. And I think that um, the environment is, and health, actually, Anna Greta, has come back to the fore almost 100 years ago Planning came, really started to come into being because of health considerations, then because of the, the, um, the, the sewage and drainage running through the streets of London. Uh, today, it's uh, for a whole range of considerations, including climate change. So it's an important consideration, but 
it's also important to understand it's it does not operate in isolation. It's uh, it needs to have appropriate governance structures around. You know, quite often, planners make very good recommendations that are overturned by political uh, political leaders. So, um, I think uh, a, a deeper appreciation of planning perhaps is what's required. Barbara, we were talking earlier, particularly in relation to to coastal communities, around you know some of the the land use and some of the developments that have not been ideal in the past, and the nature of extreme weather events does mean that there's likely to be a need for climate driven resettlement, you know, from coastal areas, but perhaps from other areas. And and you said that this is perhaps one of the significant, most significant social challenges of this century, and and it really is a challenge. How do governments begin to negotiate some of those issues, which can be both difficult and and painful around people needing to relocate? Start the conversation. That's all I have to do right now. Just start the conversation. I had a minister ask me, I won't say who, 20 years ago, how do I deal with this thing called climate change? And I said exactly the same thing. I just said, start the conversation. And uh, because unless government does, nobody else is going to. uh, So that requires that to happen. Uh, And then provide forums for people to come together in a non-threatening environment. I've often talked about scenario planning. What if, what if, what if? And then bring the community along with you and then help them determine their own future, which is ultimately what what will be required. Um, Can't really... You know, apart from a, a um, really traumatic event when you lose the entire village or or half the town, and that's that it's not necessarily off the cards when we look at our Pacific region, particularly or Jakarta that's sinking right now, and um, people are very aware of that. Uh, but uh, not in the middle of a crisis. So let's let's start that conversation. Um, I think every town in Australia, and I, I say this in my recent book, Urban Planning for Climate Change, every town should have a climate resilient plan. And so why don't we have a funding program to enable that to happen? Barbara, this has been a remarkable way to draw to a conclusion the conversations we've had in the last few weeks on this podcast about housing and about the housing crisis. And I think particularly bringing this final thread of climate change into our housing future in Australia is so important. I'm just wondering, as we bring today's conversation to a close, what are the things that you would like us to be paying attention to at a policy level, in conversations with our friends and with our family? Where are the flickers of hope? Where can we start to pay attention to the opportunities that are provided? What would you like to see change in the next couple of years? Uh, I'd like to see the National Climate Risk Assessment finished and then downscaled as much as possible to be relevant to local communities. And uh, this has happened in the States uh, with their sort of slightly misnamed program, the Inflation Reduction Act. They set up a national portal. Um, You can put in your suburb, your street, look at the latest IPCC projections. And so I think getting the data to local communities so they have the facts. And I think that's really, really important. And for government to release those facts so they're well known and understood because then the community has a basis to have an informed discussion. And I think that's that's uh, vital. Uh, and then I think um, that there's this, as I mentioned before, this opportunity to have forums to develop these climate resilient plans uh, for the future. It doesn't matter if this takes five years. Frankly, it may take 10 years for some communities. 
But at least in 10 years, if we can look back and say, thank goodness we started that process, then I think that's a very good outcome. Barbara Norman, today's conversation has been such a great way for us to finish this series on housing. It's always wonderful to hear your thoughts and your reflections. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Anna Greta, as always, it was wonderful to talk with Barbara Norman. We've had her on the show before and and I always enjoy hearing from her. And as she said, she's recently been appointed to the government's new Urban Planning Forum. And I must say, it is reassuring when we know that people like Barbara with such deep expertise and such wisdom are sitting on those, those bodies that are helping us to think about what our future might look like. Absolutely. And I thought there were so many themes that came up through today's discussion. It's really interesting when we start to unpack housing, and we've done this over the last couple of episodes. I personally think there's a whole heap more we can keep talking about in the housing space. But having looked at the economics, the social policy impacts, the planning policy impacts, and then finally climate change, we can, I think, see just how important this issue is. Housing impacts on our health and well-being in ways that we rarely appreciate inside the health system and yet in a way that is often profound. And so some of the themes that Barbara has brought up today to me resonate in the health system and more broadly, particularly in climate adaptation. The benefits of a planned and coordinated approach, an approach that's founded in good quality communication in informed discussion, in shared decision-making. These are all completely fundamental elements of a good healthcare system and extraordinarily important when we look at climate change adaptation. Community engagement is central to this, and I know that this is an area of interest for both of us, uh, and I'm sure it's one that we will continue to explore on the podcast. But I have to say one of the things that gives me extraordinary hope is speaking with people like Barbara Norman. I'm always reluctant to think that we have the answers to some of the challenges in the future, particularly when I consider notions of the unprecedented event. But I think she helps us to see the compass, the sorts of things that may be really important. What is it that matters when we're making decisions about how we use space? What is it that matters when we're thinking about housing policy and urban planning? And how can we create areas in which our communities not just survive but thrive. Yeah, look, housing is something that is so fundamental to each and every one of us. Now, often when we we hear about the housing crisis, it starts to become somewhat abstract. But I think what we've done through this series is to be able to show how it impacts on our lives in different ways. But each of us know how housing impacts on our life. If we don't have somewhere that's safe and that's comfortable to live, somewhere where we feel connected, where we feel grounded, then our lives are so much less. So these are issues that really matter to us and they matter to us every single day. And in the research that I do, too many children don't have a safe place to live. They don't have a comfortable place to live. They don't have a place where they feel connected. And increasingly, too many children don't have a place where they can run and where they can play. And Barbara made the comment today, you know, we need to have places for children to play. That's absolutely fundamental. And it does concern me that so many of our new developments just don't have those places. You know, they're eave to weave, they're concrete, they're paved. We know 
if we imagine, if we reimagine what we want housing to be, that that's not what we want. And yet too often we're allowing developments that are going to be with us for generations that are actively undermining our quality of life. And if we make, if we build housing that's fit for children, we really build housing that's fit for all of us because we're starting to put people at the centre. So there is so much from this series that I'll be taking away, Anna Greta, and I think at the, at the core of what I will take away is what Barbara said about us needing to start the conversations now so that we can share what it is we want the housing of our futures to look like. Mm. An extraordinary opportunity to imagine so many of our social policy challenges through the prism of housing. Listeners, we really hope you've enjoyed our series of conversations on housing. This podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed on today's show on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. We love hearing from you, our audience, so please do reach out to us. We're still hanging in there on Twitter or X, so you can contact us through that platform at ANU Crawford or through our Crawford LinkedIn page or by old-fashioned email at policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. Our thanks as always to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's it for this mini-series on housing, but we will be back next week with more. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anagreta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.